0: This morning, we're continuing our series on the book of Acts, and we're going to consider a chapter from Acts that is both a a chapter of hardship and inspiration as we trace Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. Uh, This morning, reading our scripture is Michelle Briggs, who recently returned from South Asia where she has been serving as one of our home church missionaries for many years, kids Not too many years ago, Michelle was sitting where you are as a child of this church. And God called her and equipped her to be a missionary. And our prayer as pastors and as parents is that he would do the same thing with many of you. So let's stand together for the reading of God's word.
1: Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lysonia, and to the surrounding countries. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well. Said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lysonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, "Men, why are you doing these things?" We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from the heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from "...offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that they made tribulations, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord, in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga and went down into Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they For they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and there remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of God.
0: God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that what we know not, You would teach us by Your Word. What we have not, You would give us in Your Son. And what we are not, we pray that You would make us by Your Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. In his book on Acts, entitled, 30 Years That Changed the World, Michael Green writes that Jesus promised three things to His disciples, before his ascension. Number one, they would be absurdly happy. Number two, completely fearless. And number three, in constant trouble. Indeed, as we look at scriptures, we see even in our own passage that God regularly brings people into troubles. Regularly, calling his disciples, his people, into trials. As Paul says in verse 22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. But in so many places in God's word, whether in the life of Joseph or Ruth or Jesus' own parents, we see that God not only brings us through many tribulations, but he uses them for good. He uses them for good. In Acts 14, our passage this morning, we see God bring Paul and Barnabas through the particular tribulation of persecution for the good purpose of building up his church. When you hear the word persecution, what do you think of? Some of us might think of being tortured for Christ as Richard Wormbrand was. But persecution can take many forms. Persecution is any mistreatment resulting from our faith in Jesus Christ. It may come from a government as a result of legal restrictions. It may come from groups or individuals within a society. It may be verbal. It may be physical. Here in this passage, Paul and Barnabas suffer both. Both slander and stoning. We might think that today, in an age of enlightenment, in an era of tolerance, that persecution is something that no longer exists, but it does. And in places like North Korea and Afghanistan and India, it can be really severe. But as he does with our every tribulation, God is using the persecution of believers to build his church. In Paul's first missionary journey here, we see God build his church through persecution in three particular ways. First, God uses persecution to build his church because persecution cannot silence the church. It cannot silence the church. We see this throughout the passage, especially verses 1 through 21. We see Paul and Barnabas slandered and threatened and stoned, and yet they continue to persist in preaching the gospel. Look at verses 1 through 3. The Jews in Iconium slander Paul and Barnabas, and what do they do in response? Verse 3 states it. So they remained a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. The ground was hard. The opposition was fierce, and so they stayed longer, and they preached more boldly. And then the verses that follow, the pattern continues, verses 4 through 7, Jews and Gentiles seek to stone them. And so what do they do next? They go to Lystra and they continue to preach. Verse 7, there they continued to preach the gospel. And again, verses 8 through 21, the same pattern, the Jews slander and this time stone Paul. Miraculously, he survives. They thought he was dead. Amazingly, he goes back into the city of Lystra and continues to preach the gospel. Verse 21 When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They go back to the cities of danger. They go back to the cities of persecution? How do we explain this? How do we explain the apostles' relentless, persistent preaching of the gospel in the face of threat and harm? Why can't they be silenced? There's two reasons. First, an external, objective reason. Persecution cannot silence the church because God is more powerful than all of his and our enemies. God is more powerful than all his and our enemies. He's more powerful than our spiritual enemy, Satan. Yes, there are seasons in which it seems that Satan has an upper hand, but Jesus is building his church. And so the apostles remember that he is building his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. God is also more powerful than our personal mortal enemy, death. For all who are in Christ, sin and death have been defeated. Yes, you and I will face death. But as Jesus promised Lazarus, even though we die, yet we shall live. If we are in Christ, for life eternal has been secured to us. And so Paul says in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain." God is stronger, more powerful, and even sovereign over all his and our enemies. Second, there's an internal, subjective reason why persecution cannot silence the church. It's this. Because when our hearts are rightly ordered by God, we are more captivated by our message than by how people respond to it. More captivated by our message our message of the gospel, than how people might respond to it. While we long for people to respond in faith to the preaching of God's word and to the gospel, while we long for that, and while Paul and Barnabas even here accommodate themselves, translating, contextualizing the message of the gospel to their hearers in Lystra, their focus, their conviction, their passion, the first thing in their heart is the gospel itself not how people might respond. The gospel is one of those words that we throw around, kind of like the word barbecue. It has so many different meanings, so many different uses, and so often gets left undefined. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. It's the great news. It's the message that redemption has come in Jesus Christ. Redemption has come, the forgiveness of sins, restoration to God the Father, and it is extended to us freely through Christ's death and resurrection, extended to us freely for all who repent and believe, who believe that what Jesus did on the cross, he did for them, for you and for me. He gives life eternal, restoration to himself. God has been entrusted with people's response to the gospel. We, as a church, have been entrusted with clearly, faithfully, urgently getting the message out. Kids, what is it like when you get into your parents' car after school? In my car, it's loud. I pick up my three kids and it is loud immediately. Dad, guess what? Dad, you'll never believe it. Dad, I've got to tell you. Dad, I've got to show you. Right? Little Jimmy's mom brought cupcakes to lunch. It was awesome. I got an A on my math test. Little Susie got sick in class. It was so gross. Right? Whatever it is, whatever the, the news of the day is, they talk over each other, almost oblivious, almost blind to anything or anyone else. This childlike urgency to speak their news, their message. This should be true of us, even as adults. This should be true of us when it comes to the gospel. As adults, you know, we tend to only share stories if we know that people will laugh or if we know that they will be more interested in us by virtue of the story or if we know that we will gain respect by it, and if we carry that tendency into our evangelism, into our witness, one of two things happens. We either change the gospel, or we simply silence the gospel out of fear of man. But by his grace, God is continually reordering these things in our hearts, continually teaching us to love Jesus Christ and his gospel first. This was clearly the case for the apostles. Think of Peter. Think of this disciple who just a few months earlier had denied Jesus Christ out of fear of man, fearing even to be associated with him, much less proclaiming his gospel. And then you get to Acts chapter 3 and Peter's accusers are standing before him telling him to be quiet, telling him to no longer teach in the name of Jesus Christ. And what does Peter say? We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Where does that conviction come from? It comes from loving the gospel first. Loving Christ first. Having a heart that is captivated by the gospel and so the power of the, because of the power of God, because of the wonder of the gospel in our hearts, persecution cannot silence the church. Second, in this passage we see God uses persecution to build his church because persecution strengthens the church. It sounds counterintuitive, and it is, but God uses persecution to strengthen the church. You see this in verses 21 through 23, Paul and Barnabas go back to these cities of danger, these cities of persecution, to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. They go back not to provoke more persecution, they go back to strengthen the church, to speak to those believers who are living there in those cities, perhaps fearful for their own lives and safety. Paul goes back to strengthen the church. And how does he do it? How does he strengthen them? First, he assures them, verse 22, tribulations of all kinds are normal and are a strategic part of what God is doing in our lives in this present evil age. Tribulations of all kinds. And so he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Second, Paul strengthens the church by pointing them to Jesus. Jesus. Pointing them to Jesus. He says in verse 23, we read, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had belief." Paul and Barnabas don't come back to strengthen the church by saying, be like us. Walk in the way of Paul or in the way of the apostles. They strengthen the church by recommitting them, refocusing them to Jesus Christ himself. Two years ago, I traveled to South Asia. I got to visit Michelle and got to spend a week also teaching some local pastors in a seminar. My translator that week was a short, unassuming man named Lazarus. Lazarus was a pastor, and he was a great translator. If you've ever been translated... Um, You know that it can be challenging, challenging to focus and challenging to get your message across effectively. But he was one of those translators that not only translated words, but emotions and attitudes and mannerisms. At the end of the week, I told my host how wonderful it was to have Lazarus translate for me. And my host said this soberly. He said, please pray for Lazarus and his family. He said he was recently with his 10-year-old son in a cafe, and they were seen praying and reading the Bible, and the cafe owner assumed that they were proselytizing, assumed that they were sharing the gospel with others, legal, but not liked. And so the cafe owner followed Lazarus and his son home, and while his son watched, they beat him, landing him in the hospital. I was shocked. Shocked that that could happen. Shocked that Lazarus had not told me that it happened. I asked my host, "When, when did this happen? He said, two weeks ago. In our culture, in our age, we are ready to talk about ourselves constantly. We take pictures of our food and post it on social media. We are always trying to, especially if something significant happens, whether good or bad, we get it out. The news about ourselves. This pastor had suffered profoundly, severely. He never told me. Just wasn't as important as the work of ministry before us. Just wasn't as important as pointing me and others to Jesus Christ. Lazarus is the pastor of two congregations. Laboring faithfully to make Christ No, not himself. God uses persecution and stories of persecution like that to strengthen his church because every story of persecution points through the human being back to the great persecution of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every story of endurance, every story of faithfulness points us, compels us to look back to Jesus. We ask why they suffered, it's the cross. We ask how they kept going. It's the cross. We ask how we might be called to suffer. It's the cross. For Jesus, the Lamb of God, was not merely slandered or stoned, but was slain for us. And so because of his cross, we carry ours. Because of our cross, we see his. Third, and most significant for us, persecution spreads the church. It spreads the church. You see this at the end of the passage, verses 24 through 28. Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, back to their home church, back to their sending congregation, and they give a report. And what's the emphasis of their report? It's not where they went and what they ate. It's not how they served and suffered. The emphasis of the report, verse 27, is this. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. How he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Notice the story of Paul's persecution is one of life for him coming full circle. He was once the persecutor of the church. Now here he is The persecuted. And how did he learn to be God-centered? God-focused in the midst of persecution before, during, and after? Where did he learn that? He learned that at the feet of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen preaching this beautiful, extended, redemptive, historical sermon. God-centered in the midst of his suffering. And we read at the end of Acts chapter 7. In verse 58, then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And what happened after Stephen's martyrdom? Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word that pattern of persistent preaching did not begin with Paul. It began with faithful saints scattered out of their home in Jerusalem. And as they went, doing the one thing that caused them to be scattered, preaching the Word. And so now today, you and I are heirs of their efforts. Heirs of that open door being blown wide open to the Gentiles. You and I, now a new people in a new place, having access to the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now we have the high privilege and compelling mission of extending the gospel to all people and all places until Christ returns and the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness. You may find yourself with one of two responses to all of this story and talk of persecution and preaching. Some of you may respond saying, yes, sign me up, baby. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go on that missions trip. I'm ready to serve. I will go and preach and suffer and even die for Jesus. Some of you may say, I appreciate what you're saying. I appreciate that persecution has happened, and by it, the church has been built. I appreciate that that's happening in other places of the world, but I live here. I live now. It's just not a part of my Christian life. I want to address both of those responses with a story. My wife's grandfather, in the late 1940s, was a student at Wheaton College, And his freshman year was assigned a roommate named Jim. Jim was a Greek major, not as in like the party lifestyle, but as in the biblical language, Greek. He was a Greek major. He loved the Bible. He loved God's word. He was passionate about it. After his morning devotions each day, he was sometimes quoted as saying things like, glory, brother, what's your verse for today? As he passed by other students on campus, his convictions, his passion erred a little bit on the side of being intimidating and awkward at times. Sometimes he was critical of people for wasting time on things like sports or dating. On Sundays after church, Jim would often go to a train station and preach to folks waiting to board trains or waiting to greet loved ones. And he, over his years, uh, he, in, uh, the intensity of Jim's Christian life earned him some criticism. He softened a bit, but he never gave up his persistent love for and passion for God's word and for the lost. And after he graduated from Wheaton, he got married, and he and his wife became missionaries in Ecuador. Can you guess Jim's name? His last name? Elliot. Jim Elliott, and if you know the story of Jim Elliott's life, you know that just after a few years in Ecuador, he became a martyr, killed by the Wadoni Indians in Ecuador. Now, Jim did not wake up one day and decide to be a martyr. He did not wake up one day and say, I have zeal for Christ, send me to the most dangerous place. He, He didn't do that. As a husband and a father, that would be reckless. Instead, as Jim matured in Christ, he experienced hundreds, perhaps thousands, of small mistreatments as he carried his cross faithfully, following Jesus. He faced hundreds or thousands of these small mistreatments, maybe an eye roll here or a sarcastic word there. And over the years, those small Little moments of perseverance, the small little moments of edgy faithfulness to Jesus Christ and his gospel compelled him to give up and risk comfort, and then safety, and then finally his life. Persecution isn't something we seek if we are suddenly zealous for Christ. It's something we find if we are simply following Jesus faithfully. It's something that we just find. You and I may not be called to be martyrs. We may not even be called to suffer severely in any kind of way in terms of persecution. But if we are following Jesus, we will be taking up our cross. Increasingly seeking to exalt Jesus at the cost of our own self-denying, courageous, persistent witness to the truth and power and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wonder, as you think about your own relationships, your own places of calling, who is it that makes you nervous regarding sharing the gospel? Is it a particular person or particular group, particular setting in which you think, That feels risky. That feels uncomfortable. Is it a particular place? Jesus calls us to those people and to those places to extend his kingdom. He has put you there for a purpose. And we are called to take our crosses and to proclaim the gospel, to speak the truth of the gospel in love and in power, come what may, whether it risks reputation or relationship, career, or comfort, time, or treasure. We lay all of those things at the feet of Jesus Christ because our world is lost and dying. Because there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved other than the name of Jesus. And because his love for us in the gospel, his love for us is better than all. It's better than comfort. It's better than being liked. As God's word says, his love is better than life. If the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church, then the sweat of faithful witnesses like you and me is its water. And the glad nations bringing glory to God is its good fruit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonder it is that you sent us Jesus, your son, for us and for our salvation. Father, I pray that you would give the gift of faith to all of us to help us to see the reality of our sin, to see our reality of separation from you and being your enemies, and how in Jesus you have drawn near and made a way possible for us to be saved. We pray that you would give faith to all who are gathered here. And with gratitude and joy, may we take up our cross to follow And proclaim Jesus with all that we have and with all that we are. We long for the day when Christ returns. When the kingdom comes. When we, the church, are at rest. And until that day, may you find us faithful. Faithful witnesses to all the world. For your glory we pray. Amen.